KPMG is proud to bring you Untold Stories in celebration of Pride Month. Learn more about why visibility of LGBTQ people is so important in PNG's new film, They Will See You, at greatbigstory.com. Those are our heroes as well. Those are also icons. And we have to treat them as such. And we have to say their names, too, because they, you know, are such a wonderful example of what Black joy looks like, um, what queer, uh, what queerness can be. Hey there, beautiful people. Welcome back to Entertainment Weekly's Untold Stories Pride Edition. I'm your host, entertainment journalist and film critic Travel Anderson. Thanks for coming back. Because guess what? The category is ballroom and drag. That's right. We're going to dive into the world of ballroom and the very queer art of drag. Coming up, Out Magazine's digital director, Michael Street, gets into the history of ballroom and drag. And songwriter Justin Tranter gushes about the one and only Divine. But first... Before RuPaul's Drag Race, before Pose, there was the landmark 1990 documentary called Paris is Burning, which gave some audiences their first look at the ballroom community. The film also introduced the world to such icons as Willie Ninja, Dorian Corey, and the one and only Pepper LaBeja. Our producer Carly Usden spoke with actor, producer, and Emmy Award-winning writer Lena Waithe about the legendary Pepper LaBeja. And a quick note, as always, all of these interviews were conducted remotely throughout May in June, and there's some swearing ahead, so just a heads up. Nina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So who do you want to talk about today? We're going to talk about one of the legendary children, um, Peppa LaBeja, one of the house mothers from Paris is Burning. I also love Willie Ninja. Uh, I also love Pendavis, but, you know, what I love, and people, I hope I'm, I'm encouraging people to go back and revisit that uh, documentary, Paris is Burning. Also, if they can, uh, watch it with uh, the filmmaker's commentary, because there's also just a lot of stuff to be mined there. I am Pepper LaBeja, the legendary mother of the House of LaBeja. Not the founder. Crystal was the founder. I'm, I just rule it now with a soft glove. And it's important to me to be the mother because there's so many little kids that I have to look out for, although they don't listen to me and they buck my authority. I still think I rule it pretty well. They like me. I'm one of the more popular ones. And I've been around for two decades. But no, I love I love how Pepe LaBeja is such a parent, which is a big thing, obviously, in, in houses. And uh, she talks about ruling the house. And if, if they had money, you know... Uh, how how he would be helping people and what he would do with it and how he would share it. That's the thing is like he was a a, a philanthropist without the dough and and that to me I think is where uh, I get a lot of my spirit from. I feel like I was in a way by watching that film was sort of taught the rules and the bylines and 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 how to care for each other and how to love each other. And I'm a big believer, <clears throat> even though I don't I have like sort of like fictitious houses I belong to, we, we kind of take from that. Uh, the people in the queer community, like some friends of mine, we have a concept of the House of Tenderness. You know, I'm like me and Justin Simi are, are like a part of this, like, you know, House of house of Shade and all that kind of stuff, you know. <clears throat> but we really do get a lot of our stuff from from them. And uh, and I, people remember when I won, uh, I think a Trailblazer Award at MTV, I, I really, I dedicated to all of those, those, those uh, amazing people in that documentary because I don't like when people 
benefit from someone else's intellectual property or at least call at least give credit where it's due and um i, I don't see that but that also is, is just a result of this country you know uh like black people create something a white person appropriates it and they end up making money from it and that's basically what we're i think trying to dismantle right now which i really appreciate um because for far too long people have a have not given us our due. And I think to me, the reason why I call out people like Peppa LaBeja, a lot of more people are learning about Bayer Rustin is that there's so many gay queer icons that go beyond Lorraine Hansberry, that go beyond James Baldwin, that go beyond um, these people. It's like who I love and, when, you know, obviously worship as well. But also, like I said, I hope I'm encouraging people to go revisit uh, Paris's Burning because those are our heroes as well. Those are also icons and we have to treat them as such and we have to say their names too because they, you know, are such a wonderful example of what Black joy looks like, um, of what queer, uh, what queerness can be and they really were at the beginning they were at the precipice and uh we've all sort of taken the mantle and run with it but they without them there is no titus there is no billy porter there is no me there is no wanda sykes there is there we don't exist like they really helped birth all of us and so that's why we want to shed light on them because it's so easy to say jimmy baldwin it's so easy to say some of those names and my thing is i want people to, to to do the reading and understand the history but also know that there's so many people that you guys know nothing about how has pepper labeja and really paris is burning as a film influenced your storytelling well i mean it made me proud of, of who i was and, and and who i continue to be because uh, they, to me, as a young queer black kid, when I saw it, when I first saw it, I remember being in Chicago, I was working at Blockbuster. I think I rented it. I rented it. And I was like, what is this? Um, and I think it might have been already into, in the Criterion Collection at that point. Um, it's, it's, really, it's really deemed as one of the great documentaries of our time. Filmed by a white woman, by the way. A white woman directed that. So uh, that, to me, it's, 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 I believe and I'm grateful. That's, that's a great form of allyship. You know, is that she did not put herself in the center of it in any way. There's no narration. You know, there's no white voice over it. I think that's really important when, you know, um, to not insert yourself. To me, it really showed me what the community could actually look like. You know, it, it's all of us. And um, it's interesting because it's not, you don't see a ton of lesbians in it. That's the weird thing. It's like, I'm like, but I, but I knew that that was my family. I knew that that's where I belong. And... Uh, and I and I knew and I related to to them. And also, I always I felt like I was related to to uh, flamboyant gay men more than lesbians, and because that's what I was never felt like I fit in with the lesbian community. And now that's what's so ironic that they're like, oh, okay, we see you leading up, but I'm going. I never really fit in with the lesbian community because I always, I wasn't cool, you know. And I always when I think about lesbians, I'm like, oh, they're cool. So for me, it made me want to tell our stories. And that's that's really what what, what it did, and, and and it made me go, why aren't they in the center? Why aren't they more? in the forefront because they're to me more interesting and more entertaining and more full of life than half of these white male protagonists I see and everything else. So that's really the impact I think it had on me. But the funny thing is that people see when I often when I portray gay black men, I often tend to write them as masculine because I think there's also this this sort of 
this idea that every when you think of a gay black man, oh, it's Paris is burning. They're dressing in women's clothing or they're being super feminine. But the truth is that, yes, that is a part of it, but that's not all it is. Um, and so for me, a big part is just to make sure people understand when it comes to the queer community that we we also don't fit into boxes, um, that there's there's certain segments of within the lesbian community, within the trans community, within the non-binary community, within the, there, there, there are different sections. And, and so that's, for me, it's important to explain to people that just because a man is, you know, is effeminate does not mean that that's how all gay men are. Just be, or, or even for myself, who is a masculine presenting lesbian, what I kept hearing from people <clears throat> about 20s is that, oh, I'm surprised that Hattie smiles so much. I'm surprised at how, how, how silly she is, or I wasn't expecting her personality to be that way. And I think I'm like, well, okay, well, that means that when you see or when you think of a, a masculine presenting lesbian woman, you have this, there's this idea that's been beat into your head about who we are or what we are. Because the truth is, it's like myself, I'm friendly with Young and May, you know? So it's like when people may assume that Young and, Young and May and myself are one and the same. Can we vibe? Can we chill? Can we smoke together? Of course. But myself and Young and May walk through the world very differently. So that's why to me it's important to say we're both sort of cut for, yeah, you could put us in the same section, but we have very different personalities. We have very different backgrounds and, and we, you know, we talk about different things. But my big thing is both, we both are valid. We both are valid. Uh, but it's just you have to understand that there are, there are layers to it. And I think that's really what Paris is Burning did for me was it made me want to tell all of our stories. Um, rather than just just one section of them. Yeah, queer people are not a monolith. Yeah, exactly. So the idea of houses and the way mothers were sort of taking younger people under their wings, has that influenced the way you run your company and run your sets? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I always look at it... I'm, I'm sort of a come one, come all, which I know much of my production companies chagrin. I mean, but the truth is, is like, you know, here's the deal. If somebody comes up and they're like, yo, especially if they're a queer person of color or a queer black person, they're like, I got the next big thing. I mean, look, if they've never been in a writing class or they just kind of sat and wrote a script, yes, chances are, is it going to be a masterpiece? Maybe not. But I don't want them to be abandoned. I don't want them to not have a place to go. So yes, I will have my execs like read their script, give them notes like you would any other, you know, quote unquote professional writer. And because I and, and is it frustrating sometimes for, for the execs? Is it taxing? Maybe. But at the end of the day, this is my production company and I refuse to close the door to anyone. I refuse to let someone feel like their words and their work is invalid. Now, my thing is this, is like, give them notes, give them feedback. And then my hope is that one or two things could happen. Either that person could say, you know what? Wow, that was a lot and it was super overwhelming, but I'm gonna figure this out. I'm gonna do the work. I'm gonna ask and see if uh, Lena and her company can help put me in a writing class, which we do often. We, we often pay, we pay for a lot of people to go to writing classes, acting classes, things like that. Um, directed people, pointing them in the right direction of where to go to learn more about directing and producing and things like that. Um, we're currently building our own Hillman Grant mentorship program as well, um, which will be very in, you know competitive and intense. And we want them to come out to LA. We want to pay for all their their housing and food and work with the, uh, a, a, a car company to make sure they have transportation, things like that. So we're, we're currently building those bricks. Or they may say, you know what? Maybe this isn't my cup of tea and I'll put this down and go figure out what my actual purpose is. And both are wins, in my opinion, you know, because if a person says like, you know what? Maybe it's not my calling to be a screenwriter. Cool, because whatever your calling is, we need you to find it because until you do, we're missing out on whatever that gift is that you have to share with the world. Oh, I love that. So why do queer artists need queer artists to look up to? It's just really 
important for us to know that there is hope on the other side. And the truth is, it's still very bleak right now. Like, think about how many out queer Black people there are. You can really still count them on two hands. Let's see, it's me, Wanda, Samira Wiley, Titus, who's great, RuPaul. I'm gonna say the whole cast of Pose. I'm so grateful to, to, to that cast for being bold and, and being loud um, and really representing, you know, the trans community in such a beautiful way. But it's not a ton of us. It's not, um, particularly with, with, when you, we're just focusing on the Black community. And I apologize if I'm, if I'm forgetting someone. You know, and I love Janelle, and I think that was a huge, huge moment for our community because when she came out as Pan, what was the number one Googled word that that for that week? It was that was that word. And so, can you imagine what that must have been like for the pansexual community, who I'm assuming for the most part have been pretty invisible? Um, and then for Janelle to, to step out and say, "Yes, I'm one of you. I'm a part of you know the community, and this is the part of the community in which I belong." And I think that is extremely, extremely important because there's some little black kid, you know, um, in Tappahannock, you know, Mississippi, that's like, what is a, what? what? I, I, I felt that, but didn't know how to say it. And now, you know, one of my favorite pop stars is, you know, speaks to that. And I also still love that Janelle still does challenge uh, gender, just the idea of it. You know, she's like, fuck female, fuck male. What about androids? You know what I'm saying? So I think, um, and she was doing that long before she came out, but that was, to me, almost, I think it was almost a wink, I believe, to the queer community that was like, come on, you know? So, but I, but I do think she saw it to be, she saw it how significant it was for her to come out and say those words. So I, I just appreciate her journey um, throughout. But I, I, I know if people don't see the not just see themselves, but if they don't see a path forward, they may not take that first step. And so I know that I am a bit of a one of one right now in the business and the industry. And that is both a a beautiful thing, but it's also a very sad thing because there are people, maybe the generations before me, that feel like they can't be themselves. And so I feel like I have to carry that flag for them too, you know, because it's not easy for everyone to come out. That's not everybody's ministry. But what I hope is, is I can inspire a generation that comes after me that says to be anything other than yourself is a sin. Back to Pepper LaBeija for a second. Do you have any favorite like stories or even like favorite moments from Paris is Burning? Yeah, I mean, one, I wish I could have met Pepper LaBeija. That would have been amazing. Um, uh, but I feel like in a way we have met, you know, in a way uh, through energy and spirit. But one of my favorite moments from the doc is when Pepper is sitting in their apartment, I assume, and there's two young men who I believe are to be queer in in, 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 in Pepper's apartment. And Pepper's talking about her, their own experience about the, the, his mom burning up a fur coat because because she found it and you know and and like and you know having to keep a mustache and and, and to keep you know his mom uh, at bay so to speak and but he's talking about that a lot of he's like he's like a lot of these kids as he's talking about I think just sort of the queer community latch on to me he says when someone has rejection from their mother and father their family they when they get out in the world, they search. They search for someone to fill that void. I know this for experience because, because I've had kids come to me and 
latch hold to me like I'm their mother or like I'm their father because they can talk to me and I'm gay and they're gay and that that's where a lot of that baldness and the, and the mother business comes in because they're real parents and give them such a hard way to go. They look up to me to fill that void. In that moment when Pepper says that, because the camera work on the documentary is so beautiful, it like it, it, it shifts focus to the young to one of the young men on the couch and he nods. He looks in the camera and is like, Yep, <laughs> what Pepper is saying is true. We are here because we don't have anywhere else to go. And that to me is like I take this so serious. Like, I mean, literally today, just I got on my team. I was like, did you not read this person's thing? Get back to them. Like, I don't care if it's not great. Like, give them feedback. Because I ref I need to be the pebble of Beja a little bit sometimes in my own, in, in our community. Because people ain't looking out. They're not looking out for the queer kid who has a script that's maybe not in the right format. And my thing is, is like, I'd rather grab your hand, teach you the format, show you the work, show you, teach you the game. And if you want to learn it, cool. You know, you may ascend, you may not, but either way, like, I'm not, I, I think it comes from me being queer and black and female and raised in a neighborhood where the neighbors looked out for each other. And it's, we, it has to be tribe. Let's help each other. Let's, let's help each other up. And and for me, I, I that's how I look at, I think, black Hollywood, this industry, what I'm doing, is that it cannot be self-serving. We, we don't need a king. We don't need a queen. We need a court. And so for me, that's what I think about it. It's like, let's be, let's be one big united front, and I don't know how we can lose. Shout out to all the house mothers out there. And if you want more of Lena's brilliance, the third season of her series, The Shy, is currently airing on Showtime. And her 2019 film, Queen and Slim, is available to rent and purchase on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. Now, we wanted to hear Lena speak about Pepper LaBeja in her own words, but as always, we love providing you some context. Here with a deep dive into the history of ballroom is the ballroom expert and one of my good friends, Michael Street. Hi, my name is Michael Street, and I'm an editor and writer based in Manhattan. I am currently the digital director of Out Magazine. So everybody sort of knows Pepper LaBeja as the mother of the house of LaBeja from Paris is Burning, which is a documentary that came out in 1990, a Jenny Livingston documentary that sort of really showed the ballroom community um, and really was a lot of people's first look in depth into the community on screen. There had been a few other pieces, like the Village Voice had done some stories, but this was really the first big thing on screen. And she was very clear that she was not the founding mother of the house. Uh, the founding mother of the House of LaBeja was Crystal LaBeja. So the House of LaBeja is the first house of the ballroom community. Ballroom has had this sort of long history that we don't know how far it goes back, but we know it goes back to at least the 1920s of queer people, white and black, but queer people dressing up as if they're going to a formal ball or gala and, you know, going to these balls. And at the balls, some of the, the people were dressing up in drag to be women and, and some were appearing as male and so the ones who were dressing up to appear as women were were doing these pageants as well so this was drag right and so they begin to award this thing called queen of the ball and you know alongside this there's you know these pageants that are beginning to happen and crop up within drag and so when these pageants are beginning to, to sort of become a bigger deal you have flawless sabrina I love to say that Flawless Sabrina was RuPaul before RuPaul um, because Flawless Sabrina sort of had this real 
um, national organization, essentially, uh, from what I've read, could balloon up to 50 employees that she put on drag pageants all across the nation um, and they fed into a bigger pageant. And I give all that background because this is important for the founding of the House of Lobesia. And so you have these pageants going, these Black queens are, are going and competing. They are being routinely passed over. You know, when they do win, they never win what they're supposed to win. And when they do win, they've usually like whitened their skin. And so, you know, there's this legend that one of the queens is up competing at a pageant and a judge is like, oh, well, she has Negroid features, referring to the whiteness of her nose and things like that. This gets ascribed to Pepper a lot, but I'm not really sure who actually said it, but, you know, she says, well, that's fine. My eyes are white. Um, and so is this sort of like, you know, they're, they're you know, it's what this is reading in shade, right? Is that, you know, you have to have a, a comeback. And so all that said, there's this history of Black queens and, and queens of color being sort of looked over. Um, and so this sort of comes to a head. Uh, in 19, I always get the year wrong. I want to say it was 1969. Uh, so Flawless Sabrina is putting on essentially that national version of her pageant. All these queens come to New York. I mean, Andy Warhol was a judge. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. And in the competition, there's Crystal LaBeja. There's a bunch of other people. Harlow wins. She's this skinny, white. Now we know her to be a trans woman, or a woman of trans experience. But at the time, they were drag queens. And the viral part of this documentary, called The Queen, uh, is Crystal going off on Flawless Sabrina, saying that it was rigged for Harlow. Um, and so the legend goes that that was Crystal's last time walking a white pageant or ball. Um, and so there was a legacy of these balls that began in the uptown that were black balls. Um, and that was already going on. So Crystal leaves the white set, white set essentially. Uh, she she was one of the few Black performers who had won Queen of a Ball, right, who was, who was finding success in that arena, but she decided to leave that and, and just, you know, perform and do things with, with, with Black queens um, and, and go to the Black balls. And then the legend, because so much of ballroom history is, is, is oral history, so... It's, it's all legends. There's, there's very few things that are like definitively written down facts. But the legend goes that her friend Lottie has this sort of stroke of what is essentially marketing genius, um, which is, oh, we should put on a ball. We should, we should, you know, lean on the fact that you are one of the most well-known queens and people know your name um, and say that we're putting on a ball, but by the house of LaBeja. At this point, there's no house. It's, as Crystal and Lottie. Um, and, but she says we should do this. And Crystal says, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So they put on this ball uh, by the house of LaBeja. And it's a success. And so the other Black queens are like, I want a house. And so then, so this is how we get the beginning of, of the house ball community. Um, because we already had ballroom, but now people are beginning to develop into houses. And so Crystal leads the house for a little while, and then and then Pepper comes. Uh, Pepper had been a contemporary of, of Crystal's, uh, doing the balls and the pageants like her as well, on the white circuit as well. Um, Dorian Corey had as well. Everyone knows Dorian Corey from, from Paris is Burning. Um, and, and so just like Crystal, 
uh, Pepper had quite a, a, a reputation as well. Um, I believe it's in the unseen footage from Paris is Burning, which is now available on um, the new Blu-ray disc that they released, is that, you know, they were known for these extravagant, like, looks. And, like, it when you, you people sort of knew that, like, Dorian and Pepper were the ones. And, and, and Pepper liked to do this thing where she would she would come in not dressed in drag and just sort of walk around, you know, come in in one look and walk around and, you know, just hang out with people and, and then she'd disappear because then you wouldn't know she was going to walk. And she'd, she'd disappear and come back full drag, full look, like a moment. And so Bever made a name for herself and so she then became the mother of of the house of Labeja. And she she led and ruled that house for, for quite a long time. And I believe that within the house of Labeja, they they sort of refer to themselves by generation. And so Crystal was the first generation. I believe that, that Pepper is considered the second generation. And she really, you know, sort of ruled that house for quite some time. And, and she was quite revered within within the ballroom community. And in case for some reason you have not seen Paris is Burning, what is you doing? It was restored earlier this year by the Criterion Collection and released on Blu-ray, and it is available on Apple TV. We also spoke with Michael about the history of drag in popular culture. So, like I said, I sort of say that, like, Flawless Sabrina was a RuPaul before RuPaul, but she wasn't the only one. There were other drag performers who were ostensibly RuPaul before RuPaul. And uh, Divine was one of those. And for sure, in a different way, uh, Divine had a very different, like, you know, sensibility about her drag. Um, Ru is, uh, for for various reasons, none of which are wrong, is, is, is very sort of thoughtful about um, trying to appeal to a very specific base, a very large specific base. And, you know, from my readings and, and studying of Divine, Divine had no interest in that. Harris Glenn Milstead was the name that he was born with, and he went by Glenn. Um, but Glenn was an actor, and, and Divine was a character. It happened to be the character that made him sort of take off, right? And Divine, sort of like many queer people, came from sort of like this, you know, troubled childhood he was like sort of bullied and, and and all that sort of thing and and sort of everything ended up sort of leading up to where he got to right and so glenn had that experience growing up and then sort of glenn you know sort of moved and and studied uh cosmetics and and doing hair <laughs> which was unrelated to drag and so eventually glenn partners with john waters and starts doing these like artsy films um, the biggest and most notable of which uh, is Pink Flamingos. But he's, it's not just films. They're doing music. They're doing a little bit of everything. Like, you know, and I call Divine the Rue before Rue because, you know, not only was there a similarity in the sense of, like, I'm doing drag as a job, but, you know, Divine and, and, and John went on, um, like, the Letter David Letterman show, and, and they were on TV shows and doing these interviews, right? Like, very much in front of, in front of the public. Um, and the difference, of course, is that sort of Divine did such uh, from, you know, a place that was 
that was camp. It was camped and it wasn't afraid to be in your face and, and get nasty in that way. Um, and so one of the biggest legacies in pop culture for Divine as a character was originating the role of Edna Turnblad in A Hairspray. Um, and it's interesting because he did not play that role as, as a drag queen. Sure, there is a campy sensibility to it, but the, the role was not a drag role. It was, it was a role of a mother, of a cisgendered mother. At the time, when you think about drag performers, they were generally played by cis straight men, um, not people who had done drag professionally. They were the punchline, right? And, and this was very different. And, and, and Glenn did this role so well that whenever you see Hairspray, Edna is played by a man. And so it's just an interesting legacy, thinking about the fact that Ursula from Little Mermaid, the aesthetics of Ursula were based on the way that Divine painted. And she was going to do whatever she needed to do to like make sort of this devotion to this character. Divine comes from, you know, this part of drag that was more about sort of like hardcore acting performance. Um, and so we think about the vaudeville-like aspect of drag, and that begat... Uh, a legacy of performers like Lady Bunny, like RuPaul, like everyone who's come after and, and beyond that, right? So even, you know, you keep extending that, that goes into even a Trixie Mattel and, and an Alaska and, and all of that, right? You also have, you know, the ballroom scene, which, you know, originated within drag, but broke off. There is a common mistake of people um, still continuing to call, you know, ballroom houses, drag houses, um, and drag ball events. And though that is where it started, it's no longer there at all. Drag performers are in the vast minority. And there was like, of the people that we knew to be drag queens at first, we now know that they actually weren't drag queens. They were like women of trans experience that just like we hadn't figured out the verbiage for, for what that was. Or we, we have a better understanding of gender now. Obviously, it began 91 with 90 and 91 with Vogue and Paris is Burning. All these people really making this music and including Voguing in it. So that's what I call the first wave. Um, then you have what I call the second wave, which is How Do I Look, which was an underground, so it's not as a big moment, but you do have in 2008, you have Vogue Evolution going on America's Best Dance Crew. Because of the fact that YouTube began in 2006, people from the ballroom community began to like post their own videos and clips on YouTube. Um, and so once thing they hit the scene in 2008 on America's Best Dance Crew, people who began to be fans of the scene can then just go back and, and watch, right? Watch these videos even after the show goes off. You can go back and follow Laomi, follow Deshaun, follow Pony, and watch their clips. And so then I have what we are currently in, which is what I call the third sort of wave of ballroom in the mainstream. Though we never completely left the mainstream because after 2008, Laomi, Deshaun, Pony all went on sort of this international touring circuit, judging world of dance, teaching class, teaching the world how to vogue. But then you see it sort of spike in culture again uh, two years ago when you see My House, which was a Viceland docuseries based on the, the ballroom scene here in New York today. Um, and then you have Pose. Um, and so whereas that show does not have a ton of people in ballroom in the forefront, um, it is ingrained in the culture. And there are some people in ballroom in the forefront. Uh, Dominique Jackson is 
an icon for face and runway in the ballroom scene. Her name is Tyra, Tyra Ross. She's a part of the House of Margiela now. Um, but she's been a part of this community forever. And you have people in the background sort of fusing ballroom history into small moments in that show. Um, and so you have this sort of third wave that sort of started with that, but has continued um, most notably with, with the legendary this year. It, that sort of ends up being a maturation of this history uh, while Drag Race and, and, and all those other various shows and projects uh, with drag are also sort of a maturation of, of that separate history. We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, songwriter Justin Tranter talks to us about their icon, Divine. For marginalized people everywhere, visibility is vital. Dive into why LGBTQ representation is so important and meet inspirational people behind the movement in PNG's new film, They Will See You. From LGBTQ activists and community members to young people searching for their place in the world, Every voice is valid and deserves to be heard. During Pride Month, join us as we celebrate their stories at greatbigstory.com. Welcome back to Untold Stories Pride Edition. Divine was truly a force, in case you didn't know. An actor, a musician, an overall mess, and we say that with the utmost love. EW Digital Director Shayna Naomi Crockmo spoke with songwriter Justin Tranter to find out how Divine inspires their life and work. I've been obsessed with Divine my whole life. Well, whole life is definitely an exaggeration. Since I was in high school, I wasn't watching John Waters movies when I was five. I wish I was, but um, I come from a very progressive family, but not that progressive. I had seen Hairspray and loved it and worshipped it, but I didn't know it was John. I didn't know about John Waters. I didn't know about Divine. I didn't know about enough of it. It was just, well, I think it was 1988, right? Like somewhere in there. Then I saw Divine in a talk show and that's where it really was like, oh, this is not just a person in a movie. This is a person living their fucking truth in this weird way. I didn't even realize until much later as well how much Divine, um, the way Divine looks and talks and embraces this fearlessness. I didn't realize how much it influenced my band. Um, and the the way I performed on stage, you know, I was living this, you know, I am in my daily life very feminine, very proud. Um, in my 20s, I was very sexual and very proud, you know. I'm a little tired now, but, um, you know, like, my band was called Semi-Precious Weapons. Um, it was a New York City-based sort of glam punk band, very inspired by the New York Dolls, you know, Bowie, Hole, just very urgent, aggressive, sonically, rock music but then lyrically there was this super high camp there was this like funness there was this vulgarity there was this hyper femme sexuality and I was in you know six inch heels gold glitter heels like almost every day the glitter colors would change but mainly gold glitter heels and you're a tall you're a tall person yeah yep there's a height there's a height happening <laughs> I'm, I'm already six one so then I was like anywhere between like six five and six seven depending on how high the heel was and but like being you know in my band which is so funny because like now my whole my life as a pop writer is so completely different but you know i was i was on stage i just was this endless um uh 
feminine confidence. And, you know, when you are not, um, the world is not viewing you as a woman, right? And I, I'm, I'm not trans, I'm gender nonconforming, so it is a different thing. Um, but anyway, trying to, the point being, I never realized how much divine had influenced the way I performed, the way I spoke, uh, the way I wrote lyrics, you know, so many um, of the bold, insane lyrics in Divine's music that were just like so vulgar, but like there was a smile with the vulgarity there, and there was a glamour, Divine's own version of glamour. And then it was just like recently, you know, going back and watching the Divine documentary, be like, oh my God. I was just like doing like my version of divine, but like with the music school degree. <laughs> like, you know, like, if, if divine had had a classically trained musical background. <laughs> right. Which again, divine always said, um, you know, their version of singing again, <laughs> divine's whole existence was their own version of existing, which I just still to this day blows my mind of like, Oh my God, like, why don't we all, everything should just be our own version. We shouldn't be trying to compare ourselves to anything. No genders, no art forms, no genres. It should just be our version of it. I feel like many people first would truly or mostly think of Divine in the John Waters world. But yeah. Divine also released songs and albums. Yeah. Tell me about the, the music of Divine. As I was having this divine revival the last couple months here in quarantine, when I go and search the music online, what blows my mind is that like a lot of these, even just TV performances, they'll have like a million and a half views, two million views. Um, and to me, that's just so fucking amazing. So you have this drag performer from Baltimore, right? Not a small town, but not a big city. And then they find this success in these midnight movies with John Waters and the John Waters movies become bigger and then they just decide, fuck it, I'm going to start making records. I'm going to make music because I fucking can. And it is dance tracks for the most part. The instrumentation and the programming and everything is, is dance music. And then this vocal is as punk as fuck, maybe like a la Jane County. Um, another amazing, oh, Jane County would have been a great one for us to talk about too. Um, Jane County, amazing uh, trans punk pioneer, musically a pioneer, lyrically a pioneer, and then obviously being trans openly trans in the 70s, 80s, just bow down. I actually, my band got to play some shows with Jane County a couple times and it took my breath away every single fucking time. So you had this sort of punk vocal a la Jane County or even rougher than that, just this like growl of divine over these dance tracks. And it is the one of the weirdest combinations <laughs> of, of music ever. Cheap, cheap. And then the lyrics are just pretty vulgar, but then also some like kind of goofy puns that you wouldn't really expect in, in punk, like which is the camp side of it. This amalgamation of punk and camp and dance music all together performed by a very proudly plus-size drag queen um, with the hairline shaved back to the middle of her head with eyebrows because there just wasn't enough room for as much makeup as she wanted to wear, so she had to shave half her fucking head off so she had more space for more makeup, which is a rule to live by, you know? <laughs> 
if you want to wear more makeup, just make more space. There's, you know. What's your favorite, or if you were going to tell someone to go YouTube or listen to one divine song, where would you say they should start? I would, I would just do a series of like the live performances and there's no, don't just search divine live performances because I'm also going to be super honest too. Like the songs aren't great. (laughs) They're not supposed to be, they are not supposed to be great. They are supposed to be fun and shocking and exciting, but they were punk and aggressive and really queer and, and really unafraid, you know? And I think that that, that is probably my biggest takeaway when talking about Divine's music or Divine, Divine on screen or Divine on interviews is, is how unafraid Divine was to be publicly Divine. Um, and that, it, it, it inspired me so much when I was young that I, in ways that I didn't even realize until recently. Do you know what I mean? Like, the, the older I get, the more I realize certain people, the impact they really had on your growth as a, as a artist, as a, as a queer person. But in the late 80s, Divine was doing it. She was performing on these shows. She was being interviewed on these shows. That's how big her star had gotten. Tell me about your parents' reaction to this. <laughs> well, it wasn't too good at first, but over the past nine years, we've become very good friends long distance. They live in Florida, and uh, they love what I do now. They're, they're proud of the fact that Divine is their son. I think they're proud of the fact that I'm paying my own bills. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm not asking them for any more money. Yeah. And they're glad that I'm doing what I like to do, and I have a real good time doing it. Yeah. Well, that's Because they are real glad yeah. now. It took about nine years for them to come around. But... And I think about if that would even be, that would still be shocking right now in 2020. And Divine somehow fucking managed to do it with her amazing collaboration with John Waters and on, you know, and stand, stood on her own two feet with the music and the plays that she did um, without John. Um, but, you know, their collaboration landed them both in, in the ultimate mainstream. Please welcome uh, John Waters and Divine. This, this is Divine. How, how did you and uh, Divine uh, meet? Well, I first saw Divine and I just thought raw beauty. We lived in the same neighborhood. And because <laughs> uh, to me, beauty is looks that you can never forget. And I've walked down the street with Divine and seen car accidents happen. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you, you look good. It would still be punk as fuck if, if Divine version 2.0 was, you know, on The Tonight Show right now. It would still be controversial. You were going to write a song with Divine. What would it be about? See, I couldn't just stop there. I'd want to do a whole, like, musical with Divine. What's the musical about? I would have to really dive in with Divine and find out what she wanted, you know, because that's what I do now is I, I find out what the artist wants. And it's, it's would it be the most punk thing to create some really fucked up, insane musical starring Divine? Or would it be even more revolutionary to just let, you know, what how whatever age version of Divine is just play like a role that normally would be played by Angela Lansbury? You know, like, would we? Murder, She Wrote, the musical starring Divine. I think we just figured it out. So Divine died in 1988. A lot of the, the hairspray of it all was basically posthumous. It was like the, a whole phenomenon that really started after Divine. Yeah. You know, in entertainment, coming into your peak of fame at, in your, that basically, whether it was, you know, 40, 41, 42, coming into your peak that late is also so fucking cool and inspiring. Yeah. 
obviously I wish that she was still here. Um, and I'm also realizing she is a year older than my mother. Her mouth is almost as filthy as divine. So I can, it, it all makes sense now. You were going to pick one song that you have co-written, one of your pop hits and add divine. <laughs> yes. Oh, easy, easy, easy. Cake by the ocean. <laughs> because Cake by the Ocean is like literally like two steps away, like two lyric tweaks away from being a divine lyric anyway. It is very clearly a song for anyone who really wants to listen about eating ass. It is <laughs> very clearly. You know, it could be about sex in general if you want, but I mean, I keep on hoping we'll eat cake by the ocean. So, you know, I think that that's, that's, that when you first started to ask the question, I knew where you were going. I was like, when the fuck? I can't really hear divine on sorry. I can't really hear divine on lose you to love me. Oh, right. The ass eating song. That's, <laughs> that's the one. You've spent a lot of your career now, this like sort of, the part of your career that's really been about songwriting, working with a lot of younger artists, some of whom are queer, some of whom aren't. What do you feel like of what you've learned about yourself from Divine? Which parts of that do you pass along as part of that process or would you want to? Yeah, I think it's, you know, the the, the fearlessness, you know, and it's, and also making making a bold choice and fucking sticking to it. You know, like that is a big thing for me when I'm working with artists of like, we can't be afraid of these choices. Like it's just art. You know, it is just so on on an artistic level, looking at what John Waters and Divine did and just here's my choice. We have made it. We are going to film it and we're going to put it the fuck out. Not saying I'm sure I've never I've never talked to John Waters about their process. I'm sure there's lots of of deliberation and blah, 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 blah. But they're clearly making very bold choices and standing by those bold choices. And I am a firm believer in that, you know, all the time when I'm writing and I'll either suggest a lyric or even funnier, someone else will suggest a lyric. And I'll be like, yes, yes, I love that. And they'll be like, no, but we can't say that. Can we say that? I don't know if we can say that. I'm like, we can literally say anything we want. We actually, this is our song that we are writing today we can actually say anything we want. So I think that on the art side of things, it would be not be afraid to make bold choices and and know that a lot of times bold choices like Divine's entire career, <laughs> could just a series of bold choices can lead to great success. And then on a personal level, I think, you know, what affected me is that sort of like, we can all be our own versions of ourselves and we can all be our own versions of our sexuality, of our gender, of our, what we leave behind in the world. We can all be our own versions of this. And, you know, I, I do a lot, I try, I take one in my songwriting sessions, I take um, making sure everyone feels confident and safe and heard just as seriously as I take being a good songwriter. Um, and I think that me in a young age, you know, idolizing people like Divine and Courtney Love and Ani DeFranco and all these just big personalities that just lived to the fullest, or at least it seemed, you know, we don't really know, but that that's a way to, to just feel better and feel more confident about yourself of like, you know, these huge, bold personalities that survived and thrived. Um, what, a, what an inspiration. Just imagine a world where... A plus size, super queer femme performer in the most mainstream settings ever in the fucking 80s. And like, we are still fighting for that now. 
<laughs> you know, we are still wanting that to happen. All types of queer people, of course, but like, um, it's, it's really powerful. So go back, watch the movies, watch the interviews, watch the performances, and really imagine a world where, you know, fucking Reagan was in office and he wouldn't even talk about AIDS, but yet somehow divine in all of this punk femme queer glory broke through. And that is inspiring as fuck. Thanks so much, Justin, for those kind words on the iconic Divine. You can hear Justin's work on not one, but two number one albums that came out this year with Selena Gomez and Lady Gaga. Justin also co-wrote I Am America with Shia Diamond, which is the theme song to HBO's hit show We're Here, starring Drag Race alums Bob the Drag Queen, Eureka O'Hara, and Shangela. That's it for this episode, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you're subscribed to Untold Stories so you don't miss the next episode where we'll be talking about television with special guests Julio Torres and Stephen Canals. Make sure you're following Entertainment Weekly on all of the socials, at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, you can go to EW.com slash pride for all of Entertainment Weekly's LGBTQ coverage. I'm Travel Anderson. Find me on the Twitters at Travel Anderson or on Instagram at Rayjean, R-A-Y-Z-H-O-N. Until next week, slay on. 